Hello, this is Gary Sheffer. I'm here with my friend, Mike Fernandez. How you doing, Mike? Great. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing very well. And, and welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Crux. And Mike, today, I, I, I think we've hit like a high water mark in the history of The Crux. You're in Ottawa, if you don't mind me saying that. Yeah. Okay. We have two guests, uh, one in Cyprus and one in Oxford, of course, outside London. It's like we are really going global today. This is fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm really proud that as the crux grows, we're just we're going around the world. So yeah, let me tell you about our guest because it's a really interesting topic, one that Mike and I are particularly interested in. And we've talked about on the podcast. It's the concept of impact and specifically in relation to how businesses can deliver value to a broader range of stakeholders beyond shareholders. And it's an emerging topic for communicators, many of whom have assumed ESG responsibilities, uh, particularly in the last two years. And it's a concept we're studying right now uh, at Boston University's College of Communication, where I teach. So our two guests today are perfect guests for the crux. Nick Andreu is the founder of Impact Edge Consulting and a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford's Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Said Business School. Nick has over a decade of impact experience spanning academia, impact venture, and impact investing. He has worked with stakeholders, including the World Health Organization, Harvard University, and Big Society Capital. Maria Besheroff is a professor of organizations and impact and academic director at the Skoll Center. Mariah's research examines how organizations and their leaders navigate competing goals. And we're going to talk to Mariah and Nick about an article they wrote recently that caught my attention in MIT Sloan Management Review. It's titled, Rethinking How We Measure Companies on Social and Environmental Impact, a, a topic of real interest to our audience. Mariah and Nick, welcome to The Crux. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Great to be here. Thanks, Gary. Excellent. Mariah, can you start by telling us about the Skoll Center and its work? Sure. A absolutely. It's a, it's a good place to start, I think, because the center has a long history that has, in a way, uh, sort of mapped some of the issues we talk about in the piece. We were founded 20 years ago uh, when social entrepreneurship, in a way, was in its infancy. We're uh, operating with the generous support of the Skoll Foundation. We're based at Oxford at the Said Business School. Uh, and our focus is really on equipping entrepreneurial leaders to create lasting and systemic change. We're all quite well aware, especially at this moment in time, how much the world needs that kind of change. 
broad change, deep change, lasting change. And we do this at the School Center through three sets of activities. We have a set of research activities uh, where we study how individuals, organizations, and ecosystems can drive positive change. Uh, of course, and not surprisingly, as an academic institution, we have a set of teaching and learning activities uh, mm -hmm. where we educate students both at Oxford, but also around the world about leading for systemic change. And then we host convenings and community building events that bring together individuals and leaders across sectors from academia, as well as from practice to try to spark new collaborations for systemic change. And we're doing this largely in partnership with businesses, but also working well beyond businesses. So social enterprises, which reflects our roots, NGOs, right. uh, movement leaders, and, and people from government as well. That's terrific. And uh, really a, a broad range. And I love the, the partnerships with business because that, you know, that's what you're, you're studying. So lots of businesses, lots of communication leaders are studying this issue of impact. I can't turn around you know, at BU here without seeing a session being advertised for some impact kind of uh, talk. So you both have uh, impact in your professional titles. Nick, can you tell us how you define impact? Sure. Well, this is actually relatively easy to do because uh, a group called the Impact Management Project has done all of the hard work for us. So in 2016, they created this multi-stakeholder initiative to try to reach consensus on what this word meant. And the definition that they came up with was a change in outcome for people and or planet. Simple as that. So in a business context, this could be you know, positive impact by creating the cure for cancer or negative impact if you're clearing the Amazon rainforest, for example. And so that's one of the aspects of the definition is that it makes uh, clear that impact could be positive or negative, even though everybody assumes that all the impact they have is positive, And we have to be mindful and aware of that. The second aspect of this definition that's important is that we focus on outcomes. So unless you can tell me how you improve someone's life or how you improve the environment, we don't get to claim that we've created impact. And that's important because we have a lot of this sort of greenwashing or impact washing that's happening today. And the final thing to, to just say is that, you know, that definition sounds simple, but as we said, people often get kind of in a twist about what this word means. And I think the issue there is that we, we add layers of, of assumptions when we use these words. And so whenever anyone comes to me and says, you know, what does impact mean to you or check out the impact we're having and whatever, I always say, well, can you define that word for me just so that we're on the same page about what we're talking about here? And that's a little bit what we tried to do in the article, just back to basics. What are the core fundamental things that we need to get on the same page about so we can move forward? Yeah. You know, Nick, one of the things that you touch on is is in discussing capital, you, you cite Milton Friedman and Friedman's often quoted as forwarding the idea that uh, the responsibility of corporate executives is to make as much money as possible. Um, now, some people forget that there were other parts of his his note that said, like, while conforming to our basic rules of society and the like. Uh, all of that said, you say the companies that will be the winners of the future will tackle challenges such as inequality, climate and social justice head on. What's your evidence for that? Sure. And, and this is obviously a key question, right? Because this determines how far the, this movement can go in a, in a capitalistic society. 
And there is so much that could be said about this topic, but I'm, I'm going to try and keep it short. So, uh, you know, I work in the venture capital industry mostly. So let me share some in insights there. And again, because we said definitions matter, when we say impact investing in venture capital, we mean investing in a company that puts at its core trying to solve social or environmental problem. That's what we mean. And what we're beginning to see is, is the companies that do this, rather than it being some kind of limit to their growth, it might actually enhance some of their growth if you have the right set of conditions. Now, this is a, a body of work that I started while working at Big Society Capital, in, in, which is an impact investor, and I'm continuing in partnership with them today. And the way we talk about it is there's four uh, stakeholder buckets um, which enable some of these dynamics. So we've got customers, talent, regulators, and funders. So just very quickly on each of them, and I can unpack if helpful, but you know, from a customer perspective, we're seeing that people are more and more values driven in their purchasing decisions. So do I buy for this from this company and how much do I spend with this company is partly determined by whether we are aligned on, on our views of the world. So if you look at the alternative meats companies, the alternative milk companies, uh, Patagonia, which we mentioned in the article, these companies are doing very well because they demonstrate that people want to buy these sort of high, uh, high impact type uh, products. And we can get even more nuanced than that because what we've seen is that some companies that solve problems for underserved groups uh, of customers, um, that those innovations enable them to compete much better with incumbents. So uh, one example that I often talk about is Equity Bank in Kenya. They started in the 1980s as a microfinance provider trying to give uh, microloans to the world's poorest. And that's a really hard thing to do, right? So if you get really good at doing that, suddenly serving your average customer seems pretty easy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you fast forward until today, 40 years later, and they're the largest financial services conglomerate in East and Central Africa um, because they started out by trying to solve this really difficult problem. So that's customers in a nutshell. Uh, the second bucket is talent, and this is really simple. The emerging talent of today cares more and more about social and environmental issues. In fact, one report I read from Deloitte said more people care about the climate crisis than having children, which is sort of an interesting stat in and of itself. But the point is, if your company is trying to solve one of those problems, you're going to get the best talent. If you get the best talent, you can build the best, the best business. The third bucket is all around regulation. We're seeing regulators become more and more active in trying to uh, prevent damaging business models and enable uh, more impactful business models. In the UK, one quick example is around payday lending. These companies that would give you short-term loans until you got to your paycheck and so you could you know, meet your, your financial needs. And we had this scenario where they were charging extremely high interest rates, often to very vulnerable people in sort of low-income households. And the UK government came in and said, enough's enough, we're, we're capping how much interest you can charge. And Wonga, one of the, the largest providers, uh, they went bust and they took with them a billion dollar valuation. Right? And we're, we're seeing the same sort of trend in healthy foods, in affordable insurance, et cetera, et cetera. That's that third bucket. And the fourth and final one is around funders. So again, in venture capital, we're seeing this huge interest in, for example, climate tech, which has grown more than five times in the last five years. And you might say, yeah, but I read all these articles about venture capital as an industry growing. So you expect that, right? Except impact has been growing at double the rate of venture capital. So the insane growth that we saw in VC, impact has already matched that. 
uh, and then some. And so these are the four buckets of data that we use to convince people that that this is how you build a winning business. So, 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 so Nick, and, and I know there's voluminous data and don't want to go too deep, but what kind of a follow on here in my mind is a lot of the examples you used are relatively new companies, oftentimes very niche oriented companies. Um, is that is there any evidence that larger, mature companies that move in a direction sometimes when they see this as being something of a near term cost uh, are also able to become more profitable? Uh, said another way is, you know, does does doing good pay for these larger firms as well? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic because the, the challenge that you have in that comparison is that those big companies that we look at today, they're embedded in these systems and institutions that are really, really hard to move. Uh, and so it's, it's not quite a fair comparison to compare some of those to the startups that can be more nimble and appeal to different audiences and aren't sort of trapped in quarterly earnings reporting and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we saw when Paul Pullman at Unilever tried to get rid of some of the short termism around quarterly reporting, there was a huge backlash from industry around some of that stuff, right? So it makes it very difficult to compare. Uh, but having said that, you, you do see data sets where, you know, there's a very high correlation between these sort of best companies to work at type indices and how those companies do. And these are you know, public companies. So the huge, big corporates we're talking about here. Uh, and so you see some of that stuff. I mean, Tesla, as a company that's trying to fundamentally redefine the energy profile of, of you know, mobility, okay, you can argue as much as you want about how crazy the valuation is, but the valuation is through the <laughs> roof, right? So, so somebody clearly places a lot of value on, on what is becoming a, a relatively big company. So, I, I thought, Nick, you were going to say how, how crazy the Twitter investment is, but go <laughs> ahead. I don't, yeah, I don't we, mean to... <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole different podcast. Uh, <laughs> But but let's take the Tesla example a little bit deeper in terms of, you know, current state of impact investing. You you both, you know, have written about this in the Sloan Sloan Management Review. Um, The company makes electric vehicles uh, that clearly reduces climate emissions, at least in the combustion. Obviously, uh, I I always have an interesting discussion with Chinese students who remind me that there are more electrical vehicles in China than any place else, but the actual source of electricity is coming from coal. All of that said, what conclusions should we be drawing from the Tesla example, Mariah? Yeah, it's a great question and really important question. I think for me, it, you know, what it highlights, the conclusion to draw is the complexity that we have in any organization, certainly as you get to some scale uh, in any person to, you know, as well in any leader. Um, and so, of course, no company has a perfect record, right? There's, there's differences across, uh, you know, supply chain versus product versus employee. And so and that's really one of the things that's motivated us uh, to do this piece is sort of to help people broadly assess across the whole range of ways that we need to be thinking about impact, a company's impact. Because as we note in the piece, 
on some dimensions, Tesla would look quite positive. On others, we might have much more reason for concern. Right. Well, and in fact, it's interesting to me that uh, exploring, I know you've done some work with Paul Pullman. It's fascinating about uh, his tenure at Unilever. I actually worked for a company that was Unilever's largest supplier of ingredients. And in looking at that story, I wonder how much of this is about good leadership because, you know, Paul Pullman put a stake in the ground around sustainability. They were going to be the sustainable company. That forced the company I worked for at the time, Cargill, to say, you know what? We better do a better job of tracking all the ingredients and materials so that we can guarantee that we've got a sustainable, you know, product when it comes to palm oil or when it comes to soy or whatever that we're delivering. Um, you know, to to our our major customer. Um, to what extent is that does the analysis that the two of you do really boil down to? It's it's about leadership. It's a, another really important question, and as someone who studies leadership in organizations, I'm happy to start in on this. Um, I think to a large extent, it does boil down to leadership, but then that raises the question of what do we mean by leadership? And if we think about mm -hmm. leadership very narrowly as the actions of an individual, and particularly the actions of an individual who's sort of out in front at the top of a hierarchy, driving change, sort of leader as commander, that's limited, right? Leadership is much more than that. And so it boils down to leadership if we think about leadership as also creating the conditions and the incentives and shifting the structures for other people and other organizations, to use your example, to mm -hmm. contribute to change and to collaborate on change. So yes, leadership, but leadership very broadly understood. And leadership as about shifting systems, shifting structures, shifting incentives, and using that as a tool to mobilize people. Yeah, that's really interesting. All right. You know, leadership, uh, I, you've seen some leaders in this space, impact, ESG, whatever you'd want to call it, who have a vision for uh, some kind of initiative, but fail to understand how to mobilize their people around that. In other words, what do you want me to do now that we're taking on climate or something uh, along those lines? And how do we change our processes, our incentive plans, everything inside a company, inside an enterprise to align with where you want to take it. So I think it's, I think Mike's question, your answer is, is really important. So, so let's get back to your um, integrated approach to impact that you wrote about in the article. Uh, you list four levers that companies can use to create impact. Can you briefly describe them, Mariah? Sure. Uh, so the first one is about creating products and services that deliver positive social or environmental value. And this is you know, pretty obvious, right? As it sounds, it's about what does a company produce or offer to customers? And the idea here is that the benefit, the social benefit or the environmental benefit or value comes from and here's within the product or service itself. And so I'm sure we can all think about many examples of this. 
Um, but we use a few in the piece that might help to ground this. So we talk about Headspace Health, which has one of the uh, very popular meditation apps, right? The, the app itself is, is where the social benefit comes from, right? The product itself. We've talked about Tesla, right? And the product side and their vehicles. Um, and of course, there are many other examples. So again, the benefit comes from the product or service. The second one is about improving the affordability or accessibility of that product or service so that you can reach populations that would otherwise not have access. And so this is really about the customer segments that a firm targets. Microfinance is mm -hmm. one of the most well-known examples of this. Uh, bottom of the pyramid businesses more generally uh, are, offer a lot of good examples of this uh, reaching new populations, marginalized populations. The third lever is about the company's operations and embedding social and environmental considerations across the whole supply chain. And so this is both environmental and human. So this would include how do you treat your employees? How do your contracted mm -hmm. organizations treat their employees? What materials are used? And so on. Uh, so it's really about production, but also about uh, labor relations uh, and employment. And then the final lever is about what do you do with the profits that you generate and to what extent and in what ways do you use them to support social or environmental value creation? And so this, of course, has a long history as corporate philanthropy or CSR. Uh, and we really thought it was important to include this because a lot of the discussion today, whether it's about impact investing or ESG, leaves mm -hmm. this piece behind. And, it, it, you know, maybe it's considered old fashioned or less strategic in some ways, but it's equally important. And in fact, it can be quite strategic, uh, creating value both for the communities where the philanthropy is going and for the firm itself. And, and Mariah, on that one, if I could follow up, is it also about, it would seem to me, reinvesting some of those profits specifically in things like the products you described that have beneficial aspects to them, advanced environmental, less emissive, all of that kind of thing. Seems to me, I, when we did, I was at GE when we did Eco-Imagination back in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, and we, we had pledged some of the profits to go back into R&D on sort of quote unquote green, green products. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we use the example in the piece of Danone, right. uh, which is cross-subsidizing essentially, right? So taking profits from some of their uh, more profitable lines and using that to subsidize its nutrition fortified yogurt so that it can reach lower income customers. So absolutely, part of it is not just what do you do externally with the profits, but how and in what ways and what parts of the business do you reinvest them to allow the firm to, to deliver more in terms of social and environmental impact. Great. So, so Nick, you, you sort of answered this question I have before about the model. You know, how, how should a small company, but, you know, low margin businesses that don't have, uh, you know, a lot of resources, think about the model. Sometimes the cost of changing uh, products or product production and how you uh, access your supply chain materials can be unaffordable for small uh, companies with low margins. How do you think about that for, for for those folks? So it is a difficult thing for a small, low margin yeah. business to think about this stuff. But you know, running their business, I'm sure, is also really hard, and they make difficult choices <laughs> right. every day. And so, you know, th this does come back a little bit to the question of of leadership, which we, which we spoke about. 
But even if you have a leader in place that's really determined, it's, it's, it's hard. And a couple of thoughts on this. The first is, it's sometimes hard because of the uncertainty. What do we do? How do we do it? How much does yeah. it cost? All those things, which right now we don't have great answers to. But over time, as the pioneers go out and explore and learn and develop, we standardize what good looks like in these different elements, right? If you think about a family business today and their ability to market to a global audience, hire from global talent, create legal contracts at a few clicks of a button because we've developed products and services to help them do that, we're going to get to that place on impact. So hopefully it gets easier. Right. The second thing is sometimes it's hard because, well, we don't have the money or the headspace to do this. And my advice there is, you know, the four buckets that we talk about, the four levers, that is a huge menu. I am sure if you sit down for a couple of hours and analyze things, you will find something where there is a win-win in terms of social environmental impact, but financial gain as well. Uh, and so the question isn't how do we you know, improve our social or environmental performance? It's how can we reduce cost or improve you know, uh, lifetime value of a customer or, or whatever it is. Just as a very right. quick example of that is many of these sustainable packaging solutions that we're seeing because they use circular models are actually much cheaper than some of the conventional. So it's not, hey, how do we make our packaging more environmentally friendly? It's like, hey, how do we reduce our packaging costs? And so I think that's the right way to begin to think about this for those businesses. Well, that's very helpful because I also have a consulting business. And let me tell you, it is small and low margin. So Nick, you're saying, you know, that, that, those four options, if you're small, pick one of them and, and go after it, essentially. I think so, yeah. You know, it, it's going to be incredibly hard for every company to be excellent on all four of the dimensions, right? And, right. And, and there's a distribution. And the goal right now, I think, is how do we move that curve up the axis? Okay, it's not everybody to be right. on one end. It's sort of let's just help everyone get a little bit better, start from the win-wins, and then we can build on that over time. Excellent. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah. So you both talk about this in an integrated way, and there are these four levers. If you are a larger company and you're, you're game to go and maybe tackle this, is the advice any different? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm thinking, actually, that it, it's not clear that it's any different. Where I was going to go with this piece of the conversation was to say, you want to think about the process, right? So we've sort of set out there wow, there's lots of ways you could do this. And it could be like, oh my gosh, I can't do that all. You know, it's overwhelming, can't hit all four. But instead, I think the more useful and productive way is to say, great, there's so many places to start. There's so many <laughs> single wins I could yeah. have. You know, now I've got a whole menu. And, the and that's true, whether it's a high margin, low margin business, small or large. But then the challenge becomes, well, what's the process you're going to use to figure that out? You got to sort of not get paralyzed by the breadth of this and dig in somewhere. And so I think that's where you can, you know, one, tap into your employees, who many of whom, as we've said, want to do this. Where can you get new ideas, good ideas? 
tap into your employees as a source of that. They're motivated, they're eager, they know the details that matter and that are relevant. Uh, and the other is tapping into partners, whether that's suppliers uh, or seeming competitors, because there are lots of other people out there who are trying to figure this out too, and maybe incentivize or have a different set of information that's complementary to what you have. Yeah, and to that last point, I mean, particularly in the ingredients business, there's lots of thought about, you know, what can we do from a pre-competitive kind of position? And I know that uh, World Wildlife Fund and a lot of other NGOs have been working with large corporations to look at supply chains and think about, you know, what can we do to certify things that are complicated to get one's arm around. I mean, it's like with palm oil, palm oil, you know, where does one drop of palm oil come from, you know, when it's ultimately in the hands of a consumer and it's one of a hundred pro products or ingredients mm -hmm. in that product. Um, so, so these are, they're challenging, but they're also things that uh, need to be sorted and sifted to your point of, you know, what might be pre-competitive, what are things that we could do that might reset uh, costs in the way we look at distribution and, and the like. Now, uh, Nick, you know, when we look at the integrated strategy, there's kind of four questions that companies, uh, you say, can ask themselves to assess their impact. I wonder if you could walk us through uh, those, those questions. The first one is, what is the quality of the impact and how much impact does each lever create? Sure. So the, so the thinking behind this question was that often people think of impact as binary, right? So does uh -huh. it exist? Yes. Does it exist? No. And, and the point here is that it's super complicated. So first of all, break it down by the levers. As we already talked about, Tesla, great on the product side, less great on some of the other dimensions. So that's already one lens of analysis that gives you a bit more detail. Then within each one, you can begin to understand questions around quantity of impact created. Um, you know, sometimes this gets quite complicated, but CO2 emissions is one area where we've got this effective framework for measuring and we can begin to think about this, right? So company one has one gigaton of, you know, emissions reduced. Company two has half a gigaton. So we can obviously see which one is doing better there. Yeah, but, but, but let me interrupt you to say, but there is some complication, right? I mean, you go back to good and bad. So it's like there's a normal proclivity for people, let's say when we get to discussions around greenhouse gases and the impact to think fossil fuel is bad, but if natural gas is replacing coal, that's an overall benefit uh, as a comparison, if you were going to move, if you weren't going to move from coal. Absolutely. And and this is kind of what question two and question four are trying to get at. So, so let me tackle those uh, and maybe that answer the question. So the second one is around, are both positive and negative impacts accounted for? So this is trying to get at this kind of net impact kind of idea, which is what you're talking about, right? So it's virtually impossible that all companies, uh, that a company could have all positive impacts. And so there will be negative in there. And then you obviously have the differences between companies in these profiles, right? So you've got to choose, you know, which positive aspects you like about company one versus company two and the negative ones, right? So it, it, it gets uh, quite complicated. 
And, uh, you know, I mean, electric vehicles is a good example of this. So, you know, to create an electric vehicle, you need to create a battery. To create a battery, we've got to pull a bunch of stuff out of the ground that we haven't pulled out yet. So that obviously places a huge toll mm -hmm. on the environment. And there are issues around some of those ingredients, like cobalt and how it's mined. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, can we think about net impact here? Is this a good thing to do within the company itself, but also compared to those other companies that are still making internal combustion engines? And so, you know, again, in environment, we kind of have some of the science. We can kind of do some of the math to figure this out. For social issues, it's really complicated. And let me just add that uh, other dimension, which question four is getting at, which is around um, unintentional versus intentional impacts. Because we can do all of our analysis, and then because these issues are so complicated, we figure out that we've got it wrong. And let me come back to uh, our uh, sort of um, electric vehicles example. So you could say, right, we're going to uh, make sure that every car on the road is an electric engine instead of internal combustion engine. And then you have this problem, as we, we've talked about, that, well, hang on a minute, but all these cars need to get their energy from, from somewhere, right? And so uh, are we actually incentivizing more, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuel-based energy? Or, hey, how about this? W when do people charge their cars? At night. And, you know, solar doesn't work at night. So, again, are you affecting the, the balance of energy uh, in terms of the, the, the distribution of cars that you have? So it's quite a complicated picture. Uh, and, and it's helpful to just unpack in terms of these different questions to try and try and get at some slightly better answers. Yeah, but I think the questions are good in the sense that they, they, they force us to think and we live in a world where where data is more ever present than ever before. And as a consequence, it gives us hope that we may be able to solve these things a little bit better. Now, the third question, which we kind of skipped over, which is good because I'd love to set it up a little bit in this because <laughs> it's complicated. Um, I, I mean, in the world of financial disclosures, we've used the concept of materiality. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and Gary will roll his eyes because he's, he, he knows I'm sitting here with a master's degree in accounting. But um, <laughs> but if information on a company is deemed material, then that information must be disclosed. More recently, as the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. and as securities regulators in other countries have begun to consider environmental impacts, and as some of us have applied the reporting standards from the Task Force on Climate-Focused Disclosures, we started to use the term double materiality to include climate and environmental impacts that might be material. So is double materiality being considered? Is, 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 is that really a question that you're posing out there today? It is a question, often one that is met with a very blank look on, on people's faces because we, <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? Yeah, we haven't quite got to thinking about it in the same way as we do around sort of the financial materiality aspect. I mean, let, let me just, I think this is interesting in terms of where this comes from. You know, what, why do uh, we place these burdens on companies? Well, it's, it's because investors uh, have a, a stake in the company uh, as shareholders. And so we have to give them information that allows them to make decisions about, you know, how they value that company and ultimately whether they want to be an owner of it. But that's just one of the stakeholders, right? As everybody knows, I mean, I could, I could interact, you know, I could not interact at all with the company, but yet that company has an influence on, on my quality of life through what it does to the environment and my community, et cetera. 
And so don't I also deserve to have this information about how the, this company is behaving with regards to those aspects? And so that, that's a little bit the logic behind where this double materiality thing is coming from. It, it's not, their investors are not the only stakeholder group whose uh, you know, information needs we have to serve in order to make good decisions. We have to think about all the stakeholders uh, and the information that we need to provide to all of them in order to make uh, effective decisions here. Yeah, and, I, and Nick, I'm going to follow up with Mariah on th this issue of information and public disclosure. But I just want to say, uh, I think on our website, of the Crux website, we're going to put up a sign, like one of those safety signs that says like, 10 days since Mike mentioned he has a master's degree in accounting or something like that, <laughs> or three episodes <laughs> since Mike mentioned that. But anyway, um, so Mariah, a lot of our listeners are communicators in large companies, and um, they're wrestling with this topic, as we talked about at the top of the podcast, and their credibility and, uh, and reputations uh, of their companies a lot of it is tied these days to the issues that we're talking about. And gaps sometimes emerge between uh, aspirations, let's say, and actual uh, actions uh, on the part of some companies for a variety of reasons, many of them legitimate. You talked about, Mariah, I think very validly about leadership. So how should companies and communicators are listening to this podcast think about communicating where they stand on impact, both uh, including if there is a gap between aspirations and reality. Yeah, so my top line answer is transparency is really important and honesty is really important. And it's a bit scary, perhaps sometimes. It is. What yeah. needs to be, I, I think in so many realms and certainly in this one, it's really important to be honest about not just the aspiration, but where you're falling short and why you're falling short and what you're doing to get better. And then transparency isn't about admitting a mistake or a shortcoming, but it's about showing that you understand there's opportunity for learning and improvement. And that is something that people can get behind much more so than a cover-up of a gap that's apparent to many stakeholders. I saw this um, very powerfully, not technically in a communications context with external audiences, but inside a firm. I was doing research at Whole Foods Market now 20 years ago, so well before the Amazon acquisition. And I was okay. in some of the retail stores trying to understand what motivated the frontline employees and what were the managers doing that helped or got in the way of that. Uh, and one of the things that came out very clearly at that time, Whole Foods had a real range of employees, but including some who were quite idealist about the company's commitment or professed commitment to supporting natural and organic foods and local production. And of course, as we've discussed in any large complex organization, there's the aspiration, there's the reality, and they're never, ever going to be perfectly aligned, even if you're trying as hard as you can. And at Whole Foods in these stores, there were often, you know, maybe seemingly mundane issues where the commitment didn't match the reality. Right. And the managers who were honest about that, who said, this isn't where we need to be, we've got to fix this, we've made a mistake, or we're falling short were much more effective in getting the buy-in and support from their employees. Yes. And I think it, the same applies when you're communicating with external audiences. Oh, bravo. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on your side on this one, and I'm going to use that example. I think companies are 
you know, we've seen this in the United States, for example, after Black Lives Matter uh, a few years ago, a lot of companies made commitments. And for whatever reason, some of which includes the pandemic or um, inflation, supply chain issues, et cetera, they've been distracted from achieving some of their goals. And uh, we've seen varying responses from a communication standpoint on disclosing exactly where they are on their Black Lives Matter uh, promises or commitments. And um, I just think if you, you tell people you're on a journey and you're determined in to get to the end of that journey uh, and you're going to hit a few bumps, I, I think to your point, it, it's quite motivational and people will stay with you. I would just add that it, it's it's motivational for stakeholders, for employees, but it also is actually instrumentally helpful for getting better. <laughs> Because if you yes. treat it as like, I'm either good or not, you're not going to learn. But if you actually talk about, well, here's where we're falling That's short great. and think about what you could do, you're like you're more likely to be able to improve. That's a great and, point. And Gary, it, it's funny because with the financial analog, there is a huge degree of transparency, right? And we're all incredibly right. comfortable with it. We all use it in the right way. We have these open, <laughs> honest discussions about improvement. The minute you mention sort of social environmental performance, everyone gets very nervous. And yes. I think part of it is just like, how do we accelerate our journey there so we can get to a point where we can start having these meaningful discussions and not be so terrified of something. And actually over here, we're telling people about the number of customers, the amount of money, whatever, and we're totally fine with that. But heaven forbid we say anything about sort of social environment. Well, it, it's also interesting in terms of just business theory or, 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 or even accounting theory. There's a concept called the going concern concept, which undergirds why we do financial statements to begin yeah. with, because we assume that this right. entity is going to sustain to be in business another day. Well, now you almost have to take into consideration what is the impact that this entity is having on society and society on this entity as part of that sustainability equation for the company? I think that's absolutely right. And, and there's an anecdote I might share from uh, Bruno Roche, who was chief economist uh, at Mars, uh, when, when he shared it with me. He, he sort of, he tells the story of, you know, in the 1950s, the 90 plus percent of a company's value was in its tangible things that you could see on a balance sheet, right? The factories, mm -hmm. the inventory, the signed contracts, whatever. And then some people sort of went into the C-suite and were talking about intangible things like brands and, and values and whatever. And, and people didn't really get it. And so most kind of ignored it. You fast forward to today and 90 plus percent of a company's value is sitting in the intangibles, right? So Coca-Cola, it's not really about the factories and the inventory and whatever. <laughs> it's about the recognizability of that brand. The brand, yeah. Like all these social media companies, it's about their network, right? And, and the sheer power of being able to communicate to so many people. And so Bruno says, you know, we're at another pivotal moment today where the companies of 2075 that will be successful are the ones that have the best relations with their communities, the environment, et cetera. And, you know, ignore that advice at your peril, he kind of says. And and I think that's it, right? We're, we're talking about fundamentally the performance of a company being linked to some of those issues. And so if you want an accurate reflection of that, it's the same as accounting, right? It, it, we don't just need to see a sort of a profit and loss in, in dollar terms, but also in sort of environmental and social impact, which, by the way, is exactly what Bruno is working on right now. How do you incorporate some of those things into traditional accounting statements? But you notice that it was Bruno at Mars. 
Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, oh, uh, anyway, the uh, well, you both talk about that there are vast opportunities around this element or this question or these questions around social impact assessment, and. I wonder that as we're looking to motivate institutions and organizations and companies, do you believe that they, we'd be best going deeper with those who have the greatest opportunity for change? Or is it better to encourage every business to do a little bit better? So I want to reframe the question because you presume that sure. it's an either or. <laughs> And as someone yeah. who studies paradox and leadership, yeah. it's both, <laughs> both it. and. So, you know, I think then how do you choose? You know, you have to think about where's the fit between what any one company or individual has in terms of resources, relationships, ideas, and where can that be best leveraged? But I, I would say we want to be thinking about both going deep and going broad. That's a great answer. Great answer. That's terrific. And maybe that's a good place to stop. And, and say thank you. That's um, really interesting discussion. As we talk, um, COP27 is going on in Egypt, these discussions on climate among uh, major nations. And, and so uh, I said, maybe we'll stop here, but I'm gonna ask real quickly, how should companies think about what might come out of that based on what you've studied in your, in your framework and questions for, for aligning with that framework, what, what should they be thinking about? I'll be a bit of an antagonist in, in my response to this uh, question, which is <laughs> uh, the way that I think about policy is that often it, it because it's consensus driven and all that kind of stuff, it, it has to be lowest common denominator stuff. It's setting the rules of the game that you've got to play by. That's not really how you win, how you develop competitive you know advantage and so by all means pay attention for what's going on at cop 27 and you know fulfill those obligations that you have to but as we've said right there's so much potential in this world that that people should be thinking far yes. beyond cop 27 and thinking you know if we want to pioneer a world where business is a is a force for uh not just not damaging the world but actually contributing to some of the biggest problems that we have how do we go beyond that and uh, leave COP27 in our wake, so to speak? Yeah. You know, what, what, what other question, though, is, you know, we just had an election in the United States. You know, one of the factors or one of the results, it looks like, is that Republicans are set to have a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, albeit a narrow majority. Some say they're going to build off this letter that 18 Republican state attorneys general sent to BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, uh, and that they want to hold hearings to prompt corporate CEOs to do what is in the interest of their investor owners and not politically woke ESG efforts. So this almost is full circle back to the Milton Friedman. So if a corporate CEO asked either one of you for advice ahead of the congressional hearing, what would you have them say about ESG? I would, I'll start it on this, a tricky question, but I think you have to reframe the conversation, right? What's in our interest? What's in our collective interest? What are our children demanding? What are our employees demanding? 
What is our world demanding? And in that context, ESG is absolutely central and it's in all of our interests. I'll just add a data point to that. You look at the IPO of Lemonade, an affordable insurance provider, trying to target people that were currently underserved in the insurance market. One of the best IPOs in history. Mm -hmm. You look at Deliveroo's IPO that had all these questions about how it treated its workforce, the pay, the safety of these riders as they whizzed around London streets trying to deliver food. And many investors said, we're not touching this because of the ESG issues related to it. One of the worst IPOs in London's history. So uh, if I'm a shareholder, I need to understand these issues. So what I would say in response to that is, by paying attention to impact in ESG, I am 100% doing what you are asking of me, shareholder. I am trying to maximize my value to you. Terrific. Nick Andreu and Mariah Besharoff, thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion. And thank you again for being on The Crux. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thank you for listening to The Crux. Our producer is Boston University student Anna Huynh. This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, or COM as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, Com is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At Com, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash com.